Uh, if you're at the 11 a.m. service, I want to let you know you have a whole other side of your family that you may have never met before that goes to the 9 a.m. service. And so uh, in your, the 9 a.m. service could be your best friend ever, uh, and you get to meet them next Sunday. Um, because one of the, our hopes for gathering the whole church together with our 9 and 11 a.m. service together is that we want to be one church, one family, and we especially, as we're trying to be strategic this year, we want to be together for key moments. And so that's why we're going to celebrate Easter together, because we feel like that's a key moment together. But this moment next Sunday is also going to be a key moment where we're going to be praying about and talking about our vision for serving and reaching the city of El Paso. Um, we do not believe that God has just put us here in El Paso to uh, kind of bide our time until Jesus comes back. We are meant, as we'll talk about today, to be lights in our community, to bring the light of the gospel with, with the word of the gospel and backing that up and adorning that, with, adorning that gospel with good deeds. We want to learn how to do that. And so we're going to have a special guest uh, next week with us for this. He's going to kind of hopefully inspire us with what the Lord's done in his part of the world in California. And then we're just going to pray and ask the Lord to lead us as we seek to reach this city. So please join us for that. We're going to have childcare up to age five. And if your kids are age six or older and are used to being in kids ministry, that's okay. When we did this last uh, year for Easter, my kids, eight and 10, who normally are in kids ministry, were out with the whole, you know, the whole church. And it was a big memory for them where they got to see their whole church family and understand what church is like in a bigger way. So um, trust the Lord is going to meet us next week, and uh, it's going to be a ton of fun. We'll hopefully have some surprises as well. So join us for that. Now, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And last week, we began this section of Ephesians 5 talking about love, talking about what love is and how love is often defined differently in the world than it is in the Bible. But today, we're going to see the implications of what the Bible says about love on some very particular areas of our life. And I'm going to warn you before we even get into the text that this is countercultural. We're going to be swimming upstream today. So I just want you to, to fasten your seatbelt, make sure your life jacket is securely fastened as we jump into this text this morning. And as we read, let's also remember, we, we say this every Sunday, that this is God's word, but especially when areas of our lives are, are kind of being worked on and affected by the scriptures, it's even more important for us to confess together that this is God's word and is what stands in authority over our lives. So Ephesians 5, verse 1, this is God's word. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part of the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's word. And Lord, we pray really truly today, Father, that you would give us the grace to receive your word. Lord, I pray that right now we would position ourselves under your word, not over it and evaluating it, not next to it with similar sources of authority, but but under your word, that you might help us and lead us and instruct us. Lord, I pray when appropriate, there would be conviction from the Spirit that would serve us. I pray when appropriate, there would be comfort from the Spirit that would be a balm to old wounds or old patterns, Father. And I pray that you would meet us as a church family, that we might do what you've called us to do in our city and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when when I'm going to talk to my sons, uh, and it's going to be important and serious, and they may not like it, I usually say, why don't you sit down? Does anybody else do this with their kids? Like, rather than just like, hey, I'm going to catch you, you know, in between rooms. I'm like, why don't you sit down for a minute, buddy? Um, that is what this text feels like. It's one of those, why don't you sit down for a second, church? Uh, and I'm going to warn you up front, this is going to feel heavy. There's some heaviness that is uh, unavoidable in this text, especially as we look at our culture. But I want, to hold, I want you to hold out hope that this, this heavy text is good. It is meant for our good and is meant to serve us and is meant for our life in Christ. So what we're going to be doing today is taking the, the love ethic that's in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, and applying it to mostly the sexual ethic of our lives in verses 3 through 14. The main point is pretty straightforward. Out of God's pure love for us, God calls us to purity. Out of God's pure love for us, he calls us to purity toward him and to others. And so we're going to look at three sections today. What does God call us to? Second section, why does God call us to that? And three, how do we walk this out? All right, so first section, what does God call us to? What's the call here? Well, first, verse three. But sexual immorality and all purity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, we may be tempted to look back on the Bible and think, oh, well, Paul and God, like God didn't really, isn't writing this to our generation, to our text. He doesn't understand the unique pressures we face. He doesn't understand kind of the, the sexual ethic of our age. He's writing to these people long ago that were probably a bunch of Puritans. And so they just walked around, you know, constricted and constrained. No, 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 no. That's not Ephesus, man. Ephesus is like a, a mashup of, of, I don't know what a holy city is, like a, a pilgrimage holy site and the sin city of Las Vegas. It was a religious Las Vegas. And people would travel all around because the, the city was centered around the temple of Artemis, which was the goddess of fertility. And so uh, people would make pilgrimages to Ephesus and the worship, quote unquote, of this god, Artemis, was often done through cult prostitution. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that's a real different kind of church. Let me just say, in the city of Ephesus, that this was predominant and the, the whole city was oriented around this. I mean, we saw in Acts that there, were, there was a whole industry of people making little statues for the worship of Artemis. Um, I was talking to a brother who happened to have gone to the city of Ephesus in his travels, and he said, yes, 
some of the statues were so, like still there in Ephesus, so inappropriate. I don't think you could describe them in church. Like, cause I'm not recommending that you try to look up the pictures or describe them in church, but that's just what's like 10 foot tall walking around the city of Ephesus. Okay, so and that that flow, the, the culture of the city flowed downstream from that. So there was rampant sexual immorality, rampant promiscuity, uh, rampant condoned prostitution. And this is the people, this is the city that Paul is talking to. So what does Paul say? First, the Christian must hold back from three things, must run away from three things. First, sexual immorality, which means any sex outside of God's design. Two, all impurity. I love how he adds all. All impurity, not just some. Anything that's connected to sexual sin, meaning uh, lust or pornography or things short of intercourse and all, all that other stuff. Uh, three, covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. So first, this seems like a left turn. Like that doesn't seem like it fits with the other two. Well, the core of it is idolatry, meaning it's, it's desiring something you do not have, coveting it, desiring it, and perhaps taking it. So it's coming from the same kind of sinful craving place in your heart. And all three of these things were everywhere in Ephesus. In fact, these were the economic drivers of Ephesus. When they did Chamber of Commerce presentations in the city of Ephesus, we're like, well, as you can see, our city is built on three things, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, you know? And we're doing very well, by the way, you know? And you build a city on that, it's probably gonna flourish, I'm just gonna say. And Ephesus did flourish. So what Paul says then is radical. Now notice what he says. He does not say, he, he says, these things must not even be named among you. And then he goes in verse four talk and says, you shouldn't even joke about them or talk about them. So here is what happens. Sometimes when we hear commands in the Bible, we think, okay, well, obviously the culture over here is out of control. It's just out of control. So we need to be a step back from the culture where like, Listen, man, I, 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 I may, you know, I may commit some sin sometimes, but like we're good people by the standards of the world. There are definitely those people that are sexually perverse in our world. We're not those people. We're the good people of the world. Or you might even say, okay, well, even the good people of our world still sin in this area, according to what Paul says. So let's, let's take one more step back from that and be, you know, good Christians where we don't do, we don't do number one. We don't, we don't have sexual intercourse with other people, but, you know, we joke about it and, you know, we see some things online and whatever and maybe, you know. And, and Paul says, no, 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 not there either. And he goes like over here where you don't do it, you don't know impurity. In fact, I don't even want you to joke about it. I don't even want it to be named among you, so you're over here, right? And a lot of times, as Christians, when we come to these texts, we feel immediately good because we can immediately think, well, I'm, I'm over here, and the people over there, they're, they're definitely very sinful. And Paul is saying, no, 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 let me, let me take you by the hand. You're supposed to be over here. And you're like, oh, that's, that's a little bit further than I expected. And Paul knows that he is swimming upstream from the culture because uh, he says later in verse six, listen, I'm telling you this and let no one deceive you with empty words. Because even in first century Ephesus, he knew that there are gonna be people, even some Christians, as we'll see in, in the, book, the letters to the Corinthians, who, who would take the Bible and say, listen, well, but it's okay for you to be over here. This is fine. This is fine. Or, no, this is fine, actually. This is fine. And here's the problem with 21st century American Christianity. You can get online right now and find some Bible teacher or some book or something that will let you, give you permission to do what you want to do in this area. There are lots of empty words out there on the internet. 
And Paul knows it, and that's why he's trying to be as clear as possible. Now, I do think it's important that we place this charge in the context of the Bible's teaching and the Bible's sexual ethic, if you could say it that way. So I wanna lay out very briefly eight key truths in the Bible related to this area. Now, listen, I'm not gonna have time to unpack all of this, but I, I think we need to, in order for the command to land on us, we need to have kind of the shape of what the Bible is saying. So I'm gonna go through this briefly. Actually, seven things. I think I cut one. Number, uh, num well, that sounds bad, like I cut something out of the Bible. I combined two points that were relatively similar. Don't email me. You're like, you're cutting commands out of the Bible. No. Seven truths in the Bible. First one is this. The Bible says that sexual activity can and must be confined to marriage. Uh, Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So it's, it's contrasting, here's what's okay in marriage, here's what's not okay, because it's not in marriage. And as we see, uh, the Bible, gives, uh, Bible shows us that God gives sex and sexuality as a good gift to humanity, intended for passion and procreation and oneness, but it's not meant to be used outside of those bounds. So Steve Prescott was, was talking to me about this illustration he likes to use with, with folks sometimes where he's, he's saying, listen, if you've got a fire in your house, it's usually not good. But if you have a fire in your fireplace, it's awesome. Fire in your fireplace, it's super cold, you know, it's like 20 degrees, you turn on the fireplace, you, you know, you get a book, you're right there, it's great, it's cozy, it's wonderful. But if that fire gets out of the fireplace, not good, right? Not good. That's when you call the fire department. That's when your house burns down. That's when you grab your most valuable belongings, hopefully your children first, and run. So the Bible says, look, this is, this is a good gift, but this fire is confined to a specific place. Second, the Bible says that even lust, which is covetousness applied to sex, is sin. So Jesus himself says, Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent or it could be a man, uh, has already committed adultery with the, him or her in his heart, right? That's, that's what the Bible says. Your thought life is included. Verse, I mean, uh, number three, the Bible says that God defines our gender and has a specific design for it, both in marriage and in singleness. So Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the maleness and femaleness of our humanity was designed by God intentionally for us and given to us as respective gifts. Fourth, the Bible calls homosexuality contrary to God's design. Romans 5, 126 is an example for, uh, it's what it says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, meaning contrary to the design of God as he's uh, embedded into nature. And the men likewise gave up natural, meaning uh, aligning with the, the with God's use of sexuality, natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, doing what ought not be done, Romans 1. Number five, the Bible says that long-term celibacy is what the Bible calls everyone to outside marriage. So this would include uh, long-term singles, or so those who never marry, uh, those divorced, those widows or widowers, um, uh, those divorced who cannot remarry, according to the biblical restrictions there. Uh, those with uh, predominant same-sex attraction, those whose spouses are disabled, and one of a you know, variety of other situations, see 1 Corinthians 7. Number six, 
The Bible says that marriage is uniquely precious and there are unique restrictions on and around marriage and sex because marriage exists to point to a greater reality. So the gift of sex and sexuality in marriage is not an ending of its ending and in and of itself. Ephesians 5 says that God has embedded a mystery into marriage, and the mystery is that a husband and wife, as they love each other, tell the drama, tell the story of Christ and the church. So marriage does exist for our good, but it also exists for a deeper purpose, to tell the story of the gospel. And so to, to act out marriage and sexuality contrary to God's design means most fundamentally to tell a lie about the gospel, to mistell the gospel. That Ephesians 5 says that, that men are to be a, a picture of Christ loving the church and women are to be a picture of the church loving Christ. And that union is meant to point to a greater, truer, deeper union, which is the eternal story of God and his people. Seventh and last, the Bible says that romance and marriage and sex are not ultimate or eternal. They point to something even more glorious. In Matthew 22, 30, Jesus says that those things, marriage and sex, will pass away at the end of this life. And everybody is like, what? Right? Some Christians don't even know this is in the Bible. They're like, what do you mean? Honey, we'll still be married in heaven. I won't tell Jesus. We'll just, you know, we'll secretly be married. But, but, but think about it. The reason it will pass away is tied to that picture in Ephesians 5, that marriage is meant to tell a story. And that drama is a preview of what for eternity will be our drama, which is perfectly known, perfectly loved, perfectly at peace, in perfect joy and perfect happiness in God's place, with God's people, under God's good rule for all time, with complete and perfect shalom and joy forever, right? That is the trajectory God is taking his people on. And he says, listen, I'm gonna give you a tiny preview of it in marriage, but everybody, regardless of their singleness or their status or whatever, will one day, if they are in Christ, experience the, not the shadow, but the substance, not the trailer, but the film. That, that's what God says about this. God will be with his people. Because sometimes people will say, well, what about people who never get married? They never get to experience that glorious, great wedding day of seeing somebody that they love walk down the aisle and be united with. And listen, that can be hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. But here's what I do know. For every single Christian in Christ, you will experience a far better, far truer, far more glorious wedding day when Christ returns for his people. And it will last forever. That's what the Bible says. Now, even as I go through that list, you probably could feel something in the room. Sometimes when, you're, when we're going over sections in the Bible, everybody's kind of leaning forward and having a great time because we're talking about, you know, something happy. And then today, maybe you felt it, picked up a little bit of like, whoa, he's... Ugh. And you think, the person next to me, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder if they're offended. Did they look offended? You're trying to look out of the corner of your eye. Does it seem like they're offended? I don't know. Uh, some of you are thinking, this is the Sunday I chose to bring a guest. Out of all Sundays, this is, <laughs> this is just wonderful. Give us a warning next time, Ricky. Or maybe you're thinking, listen, I'm offended right now, frankly. I'm a, I feel offended right now. And you got all these questions and stuff coming up. Or, or maybe you're thinking, listen, maybe, maybe you're single or maybe you're not married and you're thinking, so, so what you're telling me is I'm just supposed to live a celibate life like a monk for the next 50 years? Is that what you're saying? 
Or maybe you're thinking, listen, man, my friend or family member just came out as gay or trans and they you know, told me that this is my identity now and, and I'm struggling with what, what am I supposed to do with all of this? And look, th- th- that is appropriate and right because that means the text is beginning to land on us. We, we must allow the text to land on us. We, we, we must acknowledge, listen, the text that I've tried to read, I've tried to be uh, editorialized as little as humanly possible in reading those texts and summarizing them because it is important that what we believe about marriage and sex is not my opinion, is not even our church's opinion, that, that we didn't take a vote on what we think about this stuff, but rather that we go to the Bible and follow it, what it says no matter what. Look, I, I don't know if you've ever seen this. Has ever, anyone ever seen Jefferson's, Thomas Jefferson's Bible? Have you seen the Jefferson Bible in a history book or something? Yeah. So the Jefferson Bible is really unique because uh, Thomas Jefferson, if you look closely at the Bible, it has these little seams, like these are whole pages, right? But his has these little seams in different spots throughout his Bible. Uh, and what he did is Thomas Jefferson and his great intellect, very smart guy, would, would go through the Bible and cut out sections that he thought he didn't agree with or were too fanciful or far-fetched. So uh, anytime there was a miracle, like cut that out. Because it's just, I mean, it's just imaginative. But the teaching, the ethics of Jesus, he would leave in, right? So parts of Paul, Paul's letters, he would just cut out. Most of the Old Testament cut out, right? But, the, but, but he basically ended up with the kind of the life and wisdom of Jesus. And no surprise, it was way thinner than this one, right? This is easy, it's very easy, very portable, very easy to do, uh, cheaper to print. And what Jefferson did is he came and tried to edit the Bible to match his own life. And you can, it's widely known, a lot of Jefferson's sins in life. And this is the reality. When we come to the Bible, either the Bible, either we will edit the Bible or the Bible will edit us. Either we will come to the Bible and it will cut sections of our life out or we will come to the Bible and we'll cut sections of the Bible out. And we, let me just plead with you, we must be Christians. We must be the kind of people that we come to the Bible and we allow the Bible to edit us. That we don't bring our culture and in light of our culture, edit the Bible, but rather our Bibles should edit our culture. And so we need to be clear about what the Bible teaches. And I know maybe you're thinking, okay, well, listen, lots of people have different interpretations of the Bible. What about, you know, what about this? And I heard this person say that. And look, Paul says, listen, you're going to have a lot of people speaking a lot of words to you. But the problem is a whole lot of them are going to be empty words and they're going to be deceitful words. So how do you know? Let me just plead with you, Christian, read the Bible for yourself. If you got some interpretation of the Bible that takes reading a whole book to make you convinced that the Bible doesn't say what it seems like it says, I think you're off track. The Bible God has given us is clear enough that we can live and apply it. Now, there may be little aspects here or there that we're like, I'm not sure exactly here, but, but the sexual ethic of the Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation. Anybody who says otherwise is being deceptive. That's what the Bible says. Second, why? Why does the Bible say this? Well, we're gonna start rolling faster now. He gives us four reasons the Bible tells us this, gives us this sexual ethic. First, the world's sexual ethic is contrary to God's love. Now, remember where we started in, in 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, 
again, I, I just want to reemphasize, go back and listen to last week's message again. Go read the, the, pas- the, the passage again. You are, you start applying this passage as a beloved child of God. You are a beloved child and Christ loved you so much that he gave his own life for you. And so if, if as you go through that list, you're aware of your own life, you're aware of sections of your own life that need to be edited out, patterns of sin or things that you have done. Listen, I want you to hear this. If you are in Christ, you are adopted by God, you are forgiven and you will spend eternity not in punishment or a low level sense of guilt, but in joy because of what Jesus has done for you. Right, that, that's the word that is spoken over you in Christ, beloved. So if you're right now wrestling, like, oh man, I've done this, or I'm caught in this, hear the word of the Lord. He calls you beloved before he calls you to do anything else. But listen, if that's true then, we're called to imitate God in the way that we love him and others. And so we love others by, by not committing sin with them. Look, when you commit sexual sin with somebody, it is not an act of love. It is you enticing them and allowing them and sinning with them, bringing them along to it. And helping others sin is not loving. It's simply not. And so the Bible says, love others the way God loves you, self-sacrificially. Most of our world's love is selfish love. The Bible's love ethic is self-sacrificing love. And God says, love others that way. And then we also love God when we follow God. It is not loving to tell God, listen, I love you. I'm so grateful you love me, but I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna do something you hate. That's not loving. Nope, nobody in their marriage would work that way, right? Listen, honey, I love you. I'm for you. I hope you know that. I'm gonna do something you really hate. I'm gonna go commit adultery. Uh, but I, I want you to know, it doesn't mean I love you any less. I just, I need to do this, you know? I mean, that wouldn't fly with anybody, Neither does it fly in our relationship with the Lord. If we love him, we're gonna, we're gonna obey him, follow what he says, and live our lives according to his word. Second, it's contrary to God's love, but second, it's contrary to your eternal good. Verse five, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So here's the problem. Sex and greed tend to shrink our vision down just to the moment right in front of us, regardless of his consequences. Where the Bible expands our vision out, not just to the next year or next decade, but to eternity. And Paul is saying, listen, I want you to think about your own eternal good here. And two things happen. If you commit and pursue unrepentantly sin in this area, you will not receive something that you deeply long to receive, which is an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Economists have this concept of opportunity cost, meaning that if you, if you spend tons of money now, you are not going to have money later, right? And so, for example, I mean, the most simple way is like if you don't save anything for retirement and you have a great time and have great vacations, then end up homeless at age 68, it's not going to be great, right? And so there's an opportunity cost. Well, you can do that, but you're going to be homeless later. And so that opportunity cost, Paul is saying, is not just, okay, well, in retirement, things are gonna be tough, but eternity is gonna be tough. And in fact, you will not receive what you deeply long for, which is an inheritance. Look, in in Ephesians 1, uh, Paul, no, Ephesians 2, 7, rather, Paul says that part of God's purpose in saving us is that in the, this is the language he uses, in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. 
that God in Christ has an inheritance of immeasurable joy and, and, and peace and life that he cannot wait to give us, but sin in this area unrepentantly forfeits that inheritance. It forfeits our inheritance. Second, when you commit this kind of sin, you will receive something later. You will receive the measure of justice appropriate for your sin. Now, often in this life, we, we uh, experience some consequences of sin. Now, look, and, and look, I hear a lot of Bible teaching where it's, listen, hey, listen to God's plan, follow God's plan because it's gonna go so much better for you in this life. Your dating life is gonna be so much better. Your marriage is gonna be so much better. And that's true, amen. But that's not what Paul's arguing here. He's saying, listen, don't look at the next 10 years. Look at the next 100 years. Look at the next 1,000 years. You will receive what comes due. One of the reasons credit cards are popular uh, these days is that you can go boop and nothing happens immediately, right? So my kids are constantly like, hey, well, there's a cool toy. How much does it cost? It costs $50, you know, or $75, or it's like a Batman transforming tank thing that costs $100. And so they're looking at me and they're going, well, you've got the little thing that goes boop and then you can get things. So I, I don't understand what the problem is. So at one time, one of them asked me, how much money do you have? Like, and, and, and they said, and I explained, well, the credit card is actually, I'm promising to pay that money later. And so their eyes light up, later? <laughs> so they're like, so you can go boop and then later pay. We don't have to pay today. And, and I'm like, yes, so can we get it? No, we, we can't get it. Why? Because I will have to pay it, right? We will all have to pay it. And, and in a similar way, that, that, that problem that we all have where we, we receive the benefit of something and don't immediately face the full consequences of it is true in this area as well. You may sin in this area and all you feel is like, man, that felt great. Man, I felt better for five minutes. Man, I felt better for a day. And not remember, what Paul's trying to get us to remember, not remember that one day the bill will arrive. Don't be short-sighted is what he's saying. Now, I wanna be clear here that the Bible is not saying that if a Christian commits one sin in this area, they are condemned and they're cut off and their inheritance is forfeited, you know, and that's it. Certainly not. The Bible says that every, even, that even if you have a struggle in this area, it doesn't exclude you from your inheritance or from being a Christian. Instead, what Paul is doing, combined with other texts in the Bible, is, is issuing us a, a sober warning that if we persist in, a, in an unrepentant pattern of sin, then we prove out that we have no inheritance with Christ and the bill will come due for being outside of Christ. So it's a sober warning. It should feel like a little bit of a splash of water to the face. Second reason not to do this. Third reason is this. It's contrary to your identity. Verse three, I mean, verse seven rather. Therefore, do not become partners with them for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Now, one of the most common reasons our culture gives for sin in this area is that it's natural or it feels natural. I've seen people say things like, listen, human beings, we're, we're just not made for monogamy, just biologically, you know? By the way, if you ever have a boyfriend that says stuff like that, just run away, uh, right? Human beings are just not made to be monogamous. Or they'll say, well, listen, look at the animal kingdom. You know, I mean, just creatures are not meant to be monogamous. I'm just a flea, you know, it's just, you gotta do what feels good in the moment. And you're just like, okay, all right, come on, man. Or, or this feels right for me. Or this is what I need. Or I'm not hurting anyone. 
right? Meaning that, that there's something about who you are that needs to be lived out. But Ephesians 4 reminds us of something. It reminds us that the world has been broken by sin. And, and we become, as C.S. Lewis would say, bent. Sin bends us in, in, a, in a bent, we, we become bent and the design which we were created for, we no longer function according to that design. So even our desires, our thinking, our mind, even our biology can be corrupted and darkened. Meaning that there are parts of our, our bodies that don't function the way that they should. The disease exists in the world as a result of sin's influence on the world around us. And so Paul says, listen, outside of Christ, one time you were darkness. Now, look, look at the language. He doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. That was your identity. But now you are light in the Lord. Meaning this, your identity has changed. You were darkness, but now you are light. And in light of that, you're, you're called to live out your identity as light. To be a Christian means most fundamentally that you, you admit, I'm in darkness. I am a sinner. I need God's saving grace. That's what every Christian has experienced. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, don't go back then to living as a person of darkness. Live according to the light of God. Live as the light he calls you to be. And in that way, we begin to bend, like Jesus through his Holy Spirit and his word and his work begins to bend us right again. Look, recently I got new glasses and these new glasses I got have a particular feature. Uh, they have prism lenses in them. Does anybody have prism lenses? Prism lenses, anybody? We had like two people. Oh yeah, you said, okay, thank you, Stacey. There was only... One person, me and Stacey. So we got this illustration. We're gonna carry this for you guys. Um, so a few years ago, I, was, I got in a car accident and as a result, uh, I, I struggled to, I now struggle to focus correctly on things. And so reflections are really difficult for me. Uh, sometimes computer screens can be really difficult for me because my two eyes disagree about how to focus on the object. So I went to this vision specialist and they recommended trying these lenses and, and, and working with me on them. And he showed me that basically what's happened is after the accident, my two eyes were like, our, my vision was bent inward slightly. So you know how when you feel cross-eyed a little bit, you get that feeling of tension in your head? That's like what I have all the time, <laughs> a little bit at a low level. And so what he said, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get some lenses, and the lenses are going to push your vision out. We're going to bend your vision back straight. And I'm like, okay, cool. This sounds great. I love it. He's like, I think it might work. I'm like, I I'll try it. I've dealt with this for three years. Let's do it. So I get the lenses. I'm so excited. I put them on. I'm reading text. And like, yeah, it does feel much easier on my eyes. My eyes land on the page. I feel great. And then I, I'm, I, I go like, hey, babe, look. And as soon as I go like this, I do the Kramer like, whoa, you know, like, you know, I'm having to hold onto the walls like and doing this thing. And, and for the next two days, anytime I move my head, like if my boys said, hey, dad, and I would go, I'd go, whoa, like, you know, and it felt terrible. And so if, if after, you know, 24 hours, my review of the prism lenses would be thumbs down, not good. I feel like I'm on a ship all the time. And what I ended up doing was like getting up and turning like this, you know? <laughs> Like, okay, here we go, walking over here now, right? Um, but uh, day three and four, when I woke up, put on the glasses, all of a sudden, I could see. 
Everything was fine and I could see, which I hadn't really experienced in three years. And similarly, what, what Paul is saying is, look, you, you have been bent in a direction that feels natural, but is not natural. In fact, we need to correct you. So you no longer are walking as a child of darkness. We're gonna, we're gonna call you to the Bible sexual ethic and it's gonna feel unnatural at first, but it is who you were and who, who you were made to be rather. This is the way that you were made to see the world and to live. And once you learn to live this way, it is life and freedom. Live as children of light. Now, fourth, uh, last one, last reason to do this. It's contrary to your witness. This is unexpected. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, this is an interesting thing. So Paul's argued that we're to pursue the Bible sexual ethic because it is, it is in accord with the love of God. He said, basically, look, th this is what you were made to do. So a lot of these things are your relationship with God or your, relationship, or your good in life. But Paul kind of zooms out and says, listen, if you don't live this way, your witness will be lost. And the way he phrases it, it first feels pretty harsh. He says, don't take part in the works of darkness, but expose them, right? Verse 13, when anything is exposed. And so the image you get is of a newspaper running an expose, like exposed politician caught in fraud. You know, and, and as a Paul is like, ha, 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 ha. He's the publisher of the newspaper. Ha, 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 we're gonna take all the politicians down. And, and it feels like, man, that doesn't feel loving. Jesus calls us to be his witnesses. Jesus calls us to introduce people to Jesus. How is exposing people helpful? Well, think of it this way. Uh, has anybody ever seen a Gordon Ramsay television show? And if you don't know who, anybody watch Gordon Ramsay? Anybody doesn't know who Gordon Ramsay is, I'll just tell you real quick. He, he's the guy in the commercials, the British guy that's always yelling at people in the kitchen, right? You've seen this commercial, right? The guy's like, rah, 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 and you're like, who is that guy? He seems mean. That's Gordon Ramsay. And so the way his show works is this. He goes into a restaurant that's an absolute disaster, and he sends undercover people and, and sees how the service is terrible and slow when they bring the wrong order. And then he, he talks to the employees and then he goes into the kitchen. The worst part, man, is when he goes into the kitchen and he like slides the refrigerator over and there's like mold growing behind the thing, you know? And he's looking in the fridge and there's stuff that expired like three months ago and it smells and he's just like throwing stuff out. And then he's, of course, berating the owners for allowing their, their place to get this bad and they're crying they're like, oh my gosh. And that's the first 30 minutes of every Gordon Ramsay show. Every time. Then the like, happy music comes in. Da, 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 da. And, and then he starts building them back up and he coaches the person about how to be a good boss and they clean the mold out and they give them new equipment and nothing smells weird and they retrain the staff and make the restaurant look nice and then they reopen it. And then by the end, everybody is crying and hugging each other and saying, Gordon Ramsay, you saved my life. And you know, and you're like, okay, okay. But think, think about this. Could you get the second half of a Gordon Ramsay show without the first? Could you get to 
okay, I, I, you know, we're going to run this differently. We're going to, food's going to be better. It's going to look nicer. We're going to treat each other better. Can you get there unless he exposes how bad things are in the first half? And that, I think, is what Paul is driving at here. Listen, we so desperately want people to meet Jesus. We so desperately want people to see that there is life in Jesus. But they will not fully see their need for Jesus unless we turn the light switch on and they see where they're living now. And that's a hard thing. It feels a hard thing to turn the light switch on. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, like when Gordon Ramsay gets the black light, out and he finds like all the bugs and stuff in there. Whoa, not good. And so there are times in which the Christian witness in this area can feel harsh. It can feel like a glare. But really, put it in that context of, of Acts 1, of Matthew 28, that, that we're meant to be witnesses to Jesus, that he offers rest for the weary, but, but those people must know that they're weary. Salvation for the sinner, but those people must know that they're sinners. Adoption for those who are estranged, but they need to know they're estranged. That's what Paul calls them to. Now, here's the problem. A lot of times Christians in this area divide into two teams, okay? So I'm just gonna call you guys team one and team two, okay? So this over here, you guys are like the truth team. You are the team that's like, okay, we're gonna expose the evils of our sexual culture and all the bad things. And, and what can happen is Christians will get out there and they'll just start wagging fingers. Like, oh, how dare you? How dare you? You disgust me, right? And, and then you're given Bible verses and you got a Bible verse machine gun and you're like, here's one, bam, bam. Here's another verse, bam, 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 bam. And people are just like, ah. And, and yet you walk away feeling like, yep, my work is done. I've exposed you. But the Bible says your work's not done. The Bible says you're meant to turn on the light, which may feel like a harsh glare at times, but then go and sit with the person who has found themselves suddenly exposed. Put an arm around on them, put an arm around them and lead them to Jesus. Put an arm around them and say, listen, man, I remember what this feels like. My life was an absolute wreck. I didn't know where to turn and all of a sudden everything in my life got exposed, but can I introduce you to somebody? Right, that, that is, that's where, what the truth team often misses. But then you've got the love team and the love team is like, yes, that's right, go get them, Ricky. Go sit with the people. Rather than shooting all these Bible verses, you're supposed to go over there and you're supposed to put an arm around them. You're supposed to love them regardless of what they think, regardless of what they say. And you're just supposed to be with them. You're supposed to support them in every human way possible. But then here's the problem. Out of that desire, you stop sharing any Bible verses. You stop sharing biblical truth. You stop pointing out uh, where, where their sin is going to lead to. And what that can lead to is you not turning the light on, but instead just going and sitting with them in the dark. And they may feel loved and they may feel an arm around them, but they are still in the dark. And so the Bible calls us to do these two things together, to take the truth of the Bible and not be shy about it, not apologize for it, but then use that truth to flip the light on and then go and meet people to do what Jesus calls us to do in Ephesians 5, 2, which is to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's what we're meant to do. All right, last, briefly, how do we do this? Just give you a few ideas here as we wrap up. How do we do this? How do we walk these things out when they feel heavy? The first thing is this, be loved. Be loved. If you are not secure in God's love for you, you will pursue relationships outside of God's design. 
Let me just say as a pastor, I, I, I've had the privilege of serving as a pastor for the last 12 years, and often people will get caught in destructive relationships, and you wonder how did they end up in this destructive relationship that they're struggling to get out of? How did they get there? Almost invariably, it was simple. They just wanted to be loved. And that was the guy or that was the girl that offered it. Listen, if, if we are not rooted and anchored in the love of God, we're gonna be pushed and pulled by the winds and waves all around us. And here's what I wanna say to you. If you are today in Christ, God loves you. Ephesians 1 says that God set his love on you before the foundation of the world. When he knew every flaw, when he knew every imperfection, when he knew every problem, he still sent his love on you and then sent his son for you and intends in his love to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in eternity. That's the starting point. The point is not obey God and then he will love you. The starting point is you are beloved by God in Christ. You have to start there. First, be loved. Second, be thankful. Now notice that Paul says in verse four, we should not sin, but be thankful. And at first that seems like, okay, well, that doesn't seem like, oh, just try to be thankful. Try to keep a happy face on, you know, that doesn't sound really helpful. But thankfulness is the antidote to covetousness and envy. Right, sin is driven by a desire for something that we do not have, but demand from God. Say, God isn't good because he hasn't given me that, so I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna desire it. But thankfulness is the antidote because it turns us inward to see, look, what has God done for me? What has God, he's loved me, he's, he laid his life down for me, what is he doing in me? What has he provided around me, right? It, thankfulness is the antidote often to these things. Third, be eternally minded. Look, the Christian life will only make sense when viewed through the lens of eternity. I think far too many churches and Christians settle for a Christianity version that just means you live better right now. Here's a few tips to live better for the next 10 years, for the next 20 years, where the Bible says, listen, you're thinking way too small. Think 100 years. Think 1,000 years into the future. And I think, let me just say this, for young Christians, you guys, have, you guys are bearing the brunt of this. You've got to wrestle with the question, do I really think I'm going to live forever? Because there's a lot of commands in the Bible that only make sense if only make sense that following them means anything, and following them makes sense in the light of eternity. Like if if you think, okay, this life is all I've got, Christianity, I'm going to stop you right here. It doesn't make any sense. If you're looking for a few self tips, self help tips, not going to make sense. But viewed through the lens of eternity and the immeasurable riches of God's grace, it starts to make all kinds of sense where Jesus says, whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Be eternally minded. Fourth, be suspicious of yourself and culture. Remember that Ephesians 4 says that our minds are darkened. Our understanding is darkened. Romans 1 says that our minds are darkened. Our vision does not default to be correct. So we need to be suspicious. We need others to ask us, should I really date this person? Is this a healthy relationship? Should I even be watching this show? right? Like we need others. We need to be suspicious. But five, be renewed through scripture. This is your prism prescription for today, church. The Bible. The Bible is what Lord uses to correct our vision. And so spending time in it with his word on Sunday mornings and in groups and in discipleship and on your own, that helps correct our vision. Sixth, be together. One of the great gifts that God has given to us in walking the Bible's sexual ethic is the community of the church. 
Look, human beings are not meant to be alone. Look, no Christian is, is meant to Adam's family it, where you pop, you know, you're a hand that just pops off and you're just trying to see how far you can get as a hand, right? Let me just say as a single hand, you're not gonna get far. It's not gonna go well. That's why we're meant to be part of a body. That's the context of Ephesians 4 and 5. We're meant to be part of a body where we love and serve and support one another. And let me just plead with you, church, if, if maybe you're not single, maybe you are married especially, let me just plead with you. Part of our, our call as a body is to be especially mindful of those for whom following Jesus is a hard road and is countercultural. Those for whom the church in the church must stream up, upstream the hardest. Those dealing with same-sex attraction. Those dealing with gender dysphoria. Those in a hard marriage, or or those caring for a disabled spouse. Right, the culture. Cultural pressure from morning to evening is against them. The cultural pressure in your workplace and in your Netflix queue is against you. So we are called then to rally around these folks, love them and serve them and be an extension of Christ to them. All right, let me, let me end with this briefly. The Bible's call here is a high and weighty calling. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We have to be honest that that is what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says. But listen to what he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is the reality. We are called for the sake of our witness in the city of El Paso to live unlike anyone else in this city, in this area. What is at stake is not just your relationship with God and your eternity. What is at stake is a city that desperately needs Jesus. And if we compromise on this church, if we are willing to lay aside the Bible sexual ethic for the sake of comfort, for the sake of acceptance, for the sake of, of, of you know, just getting along with everybody, if we do that, we lose the light of Jesus. And if we try to separate our speaking the gospel from our own lives and what we live out, there will be a radical disconnect that, that does great damage to the, cross of Christ, to the cause of Christ in our city. You know, one of the things I love doing is getting out to like Trans Mountain and seeing all the lights of the city that are lit up at night, right? Um, one of my favorites, seeing all these beautiful lights from Rim Road or whatever. And those lights are beautiful and glorious because they stand out. I heard somebody say one time, you know, El Paso doesn't really look very good during the daytime, but it's great at night, you know? <laughs> beautiful at night. A lot of rock in the daytime, but at night it looks like a magical city wonderland. But the reason it looks beautiful is because in the darkness shines light. And we just walk through this season of Christmas where we celebrate the everlasting light shining out into the darkness. And what Paul is saying is this, you Christian have a part to play here. You are meant to be a reflection of the everlasting light shining out to the people around you. And so in light of that, verse 14 says this, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. That's what we're meant to be. Would you stand and let's pray.
Oh, Lord, I, I pray for all of us today. Lord, I pray for a number of different categories. First, for, the, for anyone who's here who's not a Christian, Lord, I pray that they would hear your voice drawing them today. Lord, may they not hear that the call of the Bible is to do a bunch of things and live in a certain ways and then you will love them and save them and, and care about them. That's what the world says. The world says, do these things, these things for me and then I'll care about you. But God, you're utterly opposite. You care about us when we hate you, when we turn away from you, when we sin against you. You care about us and you sent your son for us. And if I pray for those who may not be Christians, Lord, that they would hear the invitation of Jesus today to come to you and find healing and wholeness and joy and peace, not just for today, but forever. And Lord, I pray for those who are single or those for whom the sexual ethic of the Bible is a heavy burden. It feels heavy at times in a culture so living so contrary to it. Lord, I pray that they would feel the reasons that you've called them to do this, that this is for their good. This is for their good. And you've given these commands out of love for them. And they have a wonderful opportunity, God, to be countercultural witnesses to the people around them. So I pray that they would hear the high calling, but also see the help that you've provided in our word, in your word. Lord, I pray for the, our kids. I pray for our teenagers. Lord, we live in a era of constant cultural confusion on everything from marriage to gender to love to sexuality. We pray, Lord, protect our kids. May they grow up following Jesus no matter what, no matter what the world says or their friends say or the internet says or that show they like says. I pray that they would be willing to lay aside every weight, that they would be willing to take up their cross and follow him. And I pray that we as a church and we as parents would faithfully turn on the light, not leave the light off because we love them, we want them to love us, but turn on the light. And when things are hard, sit with them, put an arm around them and point them to Jesus. And I pray last for our married couples, Lord. Lord, may we feel the high calling that we carry, that precious picture of Christ and the church that is meant to be a light in the darkness around us. Lord, I pray if there's brokenness in marriages today, that you would bring people back together Lord, I pray if there is weariness in marriages today, you would give strength. If there is reconciliation that needs to take place, I pray that it would happen under the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray for marriages in our church to be protected and strengthened, that we might be a light as singles, as married couples, as teenagers, as young, as old, in a city that desperately needs the light of Jesus Christ. In an era where it feels like things are getting darker at times, may 